Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions. By listening to the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters from the past. Now, last time we talked about St. Patrick, March 17th, people all over the country and in Ireland celebrate St. Patty's Day, St. Patrick's Day. And we talked about the historical figure, uh, the amazing life and impact of, of a British, a Roman British boy named Patricius, a teen who was kidnapped by Irish slave traders. Who, sw- who moved in and took a bunch of people, including Patricius, who we know as Patrick, and uh, brought him over to Ireland where he was enslaved and who during those long, lonely nights watching his master's flock came to a, a living faith, a strong faith in Christ, and who then followed a visionary voice who told him it was time for him to escape. His ship was waiting for him and who then made his way across Ireland to a port city, amazingly, without being stopped by anyone, and uh, managed to get on board the ship, was welcomed on. Where he got the money from, we'll never know. And then he sailed to the continent, eventually received some theological training. He returned briefly home to his amazed and ecstatic family, but then followed another vision, uh, a dream or a vision, in which he saw uh, someone he had known in Ireland read a letter Uh, that was entitled, From the Children of the Irish, uh, begging him to come back and walk among them again. And so he did. And so he went back to the very people who had enslaved him. And he boldly evangelized. And it's possible that in his fruitful life as an evangelist in Ireland, he led as many as 100,000 Irish people to saving faith in Christ. And we saw how he gave to the converts extensive training in the Scriptures, and that those converts were strongly encouraged to do ministry themselves, uh, that women played a significant role in the growing Irish church, although Patrick was very careful in his relationship with women, lest even a breath of scandal should arise from any inappropriate relationships with them. He organized the Irish converts into monastic communities who were then responsible uh, for, it seems, saving Western civilization from extinction. And Patrick was very humble about his role in the kingdom of God. As he wrote in his confession, I pray those who believe and fear God, whosoever has deigned to scan or accept this document, his confession, composed in Ireland by Patrick the sinner, an unlearned man to be sure that none should ever say that it was my ignorance that accomplished any small thing that I did or showed in accordance with God's will. But you should judge and let it most be most truly believed that it was a gift of God. And this is my confession before I die. So anything I achieved was achieved despite my weaknesses, my lack of training, despite my sins, God used me. That was Patrick. But now we want to move on to talk about the movement that flowed from what he began. Uh, And we want to talk about how Irish monastic communities saved civilization and then more significantly, how God used Irish monastic missionary communities to spread the gospel through Scotland, through northern England, what we know as northern England, and on into the continent, even down to Italy. 
So that's going to be an exciting study today. Now, there were, it seems, no Irish martyrs. The gospel came in through Patrick and then in the years that followed without martyrdom. Uh, we have been following a book by uh, Cahill, uh, How, Ir How Ireland Saved Civilization. It's a great book. And uh, he writes, Ireland is unique in religious history for being the only land into which Christianity was introduced without bloodshed. There are no Irish martyrs. And this lack of martyrdom troubled the Irish, to whom a glorious death by violence presented such an exciting finale. So they would have loved to have had uh, won their faith through bloody martyrdom. So instead of red martyrdom, which was to say through blood, uh, Cahill uh, said that we're looking at something called green martyrdom. The Irish thought up their own version of martyrdom, something they called the green martyrdom as opposed to the red martyrdom in blood. And these green martyrs were those who, leaving behind the comforts and pleasures of ordinary human society, retreated in isolation to the woods or mountaintops or to lonely windswept islands to study the scriptures and to commune with God undisturbed. Now, Patrick, who was himself a monk, had given them this concept. By sharing the stories of the Egyptian monks of the desert who did the same thing, following the pattern of Anthony, which we talked about earlier in the study on Athanasius. Now, these showed their commitment by extended fasts and prayer vigils and extreme penances for sins, all for the purpose of drawing near to God. And that's what these Irish green martyrs did as well. Now, they came up in communities of 12. The Irish had a love for numbers. In the Celtic Druid era, they thought of numbers as even having magical properties. And this was woven into their being. So these early green martyrs in Ireland formed themselves into communities of 12, imitating the arrangement of Christ with his 12 apostles. So a hermit would go out and, and be alone and live in isolation for a while, but then his reputation for holiness and prayer would spread throughout the region and others would want to join him. And when there were 12, this hermit would become the leader, the abbot of a monastic community. They lived in beehive-shaped huts made of flat stones and sod and moss. And they surrounded, uh, these huts surrounded a community church building. They also would build a common hall where they would eat together out of the same flat stones and sod and, and moss. And, and they would feed on the game, the abundant game from the surrounding hills, the salmon and trout from the bubbling streams nearby and the leeks from their rudimentary gardens and honey from their beehives. So eventually the ideal of solitary hermits living alone in fasting and prayer for the glory of God gave way to this pattern of monastic communities. And since Ireland had no cities, no urban centers, these monasteries became centers of population for the region and hubs of prosperity and art and scholarship. The reputation of these monastic communities spread far and wide, and wayfarers came from great distances to be a part of them. The monks never turned anyone away. The Venerable Bede, a famous historian of that era, an 8th century monk in England, described these Irish monasteries with these words, quote, Many of the nobles of the English nation and lesser men also had set out to those places, forsaking their native island, uh, either for the grace of sacred learning or for a simple, more or austere life. And some of them indeed soon dedicated themselves faithfully to the monastic life. Others rejoiced rather to give themselves to learning 
going about from one master's cell to another. All these the Irish willingly accepted and saw to it to supply them with food day by day without cost and books for their studies and teaching free of charge. So that's a description of what it was like. And so people were coming from, from all over to be part of these monastic communities. Now, these monks were spending time copying literature. They, the monasteries became centers of learning. Somehow the scrolls and codices and books of the libraries of the crumbling Roman Empire found their way to Ireland. These Irish monastic communities diligently set themselves to copying these books, no matter what they contained. Though they themselves were ardent for Christ, they felt a holy calling to copy any and all of the books from these pagan Roman libraries, classical learning. Anything they could lay their hands on, they brought in and they copied. They read the Gospels, of course, and they copied them and all the other scriptures diligently. This was utterly vital for the preservation of the Bible during this violent era of bloodthirsty book-burning pagan armies overrunning the Western Roman Empire. So they were able to hold on, not just to the light of learning, but to the light of Scripture, a lamp shining in a dark place. They copied also pagan literature, as I mentioned, classic Greek and Roman histories, philosophical works, scientific scrolls, anything and everything at all. It was not that the Irish were doctrinally uncritical, but they also saw no value in a self-imposed censorship. John T. McNeil said, It was precisely the breadth and richness of Irish monastic learning derived from the classical authors that was about to give Ireland its unique role in the history of Western civilization. This is the very thing that Thomas Cahill wrote about in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. These Irish scribes and scholars diligently copied everything. And without their work, our knowledge of the ancient classical world would have been vastly reduced. Their skill in writing manuscripts was really astonishing, as was their artistry. The illuminated pages show rich colors and intricate patterns of the letters, like, for example, vines growing up and, and intertwining on massive initial letters at the beginning of chapters on a document, uh, or other artwork along the edges and borders of the pages. Really beautiful. It's hard to even put into words. The Book of Kells, for example, is a classic example of Irish manuscript copying and artistry. It was so exquisite that a 12th century reader, you know, from half a millennia later, said it must have been the work of an angel, not of a man. I could scarcely understand how such beauty and artistry could be found on a page. So it's interesting, isn't it? Picture, they're in these very rudimentary buildings. They had no love for architecture, just the most rudimentary structures you could imagine. But they're doing the most exquisitely complex uh, art on paper, on vellum, on, on sheepskins and other forms of, of writing that were just absolutely magnificent. The Irish monks developed two main lettering systems for the main texts of their manuscripts. There was a dignified rounded script called Irish Half Unseal, and then an easy-to-write style called Irish minuscule, uh, fluid and easy-to-read. This second learning style would eventually become employed all over Europe, and they were the ones that invented it. 
by the, the diligent labors of these copyists, God would not allow the Bible to become extinct in the West. Scriptural learning continued in every generation because there were more and more copies of Scripture and copies of the Bible. Now, Thomas Cahill zeroed in on the value of civilization. I just want to say uh, a few things about that before we move on. For him, he's interested in civilization, and I am too. But as a Christian, I'm more interested in the church and in salvation of souls and in the scripture as the means by which souls are saved. So then what is civilization? Isn't it the kind of summation of people's arts and their history together and their architecture and their music and their poetry and their, their worldview? That's what makes up a civilization. And I think what you're looking at is skill in those things. Uh, progressive skill, becoming better and better at painting so that you could compare, let's say, a stick figure to a Rembrandt. There's just obviously a, a great difference uh, from one to the next. So you can see a development in the science of painting or in the science of sculpture or the science of poetry. Uh, just knowing how to do music better and better, these things make up civilizations. Now, why would we care about these things as Christians? Uh, since some of the best uh, of all these artisans were pagans. There were people that never knew or loved God. They didn't love Christ. And I think the answer is that we're talking about something called common grace. There's grace given to God that's common to, to everyone. It, it goes to Christians and non-Christians alike. And those common grace blessings are displays of the glory of God. They're displays of the mind of God and of the creativity of God. So it, it is really something for us to be able to look at decent art or listen to beautiful music or looking at elaborate architecture or uh, well-written uh, works of, of, of prose or, or of poetry or of uh, narrative or plays and just see the, the, the skill in it and know it came from God, even if the artisan or the author uh, himself was not a believer and didn't do it for the glory of God. It then expanded my mind into thinking about heaven uh, as my book on heaven I've had the chance to meditate on, I wonder about our resurrection bodies when we have uh, limitless time and when we have the ability to develop. Uh, you can't imagine that we would ever uh, be perfectly finished because uh, we'll never be omniscient. There'll always be more we could learn. And whereas luxuries in this world really are in many cases inappropriate because many people are starving and suffering and people are without Christ, without the gospel, so money could be used better than on luxuries. But in heaven, I could imagine pure developments of artistry and luxury in heaven that will be completely to the glory of God and for the delight of the people. Anyway, so that's the idea of maybe a heavenly monasticism or something like that that will be perfected. It's something we'll have to find out about. But now I want to zero in on the successor to Patrick and uh, the one I want to talk about here is Columba, a man named Columba, and how Columba and the Irish missionary movement spread the gospel. Now Columba is the westernized or the kind of Latinized form. Uh, Columkeel is the way he would be in the kind of Gaelic or the Irish tongue, Columkeel. Uh, C-O-L-U-M-C-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, but I'll call him Columba. Uh, he was born into royalty, a prince of the clan Connell, on December 7th, the year 521, less than 90 years after Patrick arrived in Ireland. So he was nobility. He could have been a high king, but instead of ruling in power and wealth, he chose to become a monk. 
As Columba was growing up, he was educated in letters and trained in the monastic life of the school, the monastic school of Movila in Newtonards, near modern-day Belfast. Uh, when he was 20 years old, he was ordained as a deacon. He continued his, his monastic training at other locations, including Leinster and Clonard. Uh, he was just drinking in the academic richness of all this Latin learning and Christian theology. He studied under an abbot named Finian of Clonard. One of 12 students of this renowned scholar, those 12 students became known as the 12 Apostles of Ireland. Uh, he became a monk, Columba did, and then was ordained as a priest. At one point, Columba traveled to the continent to visit the tomb of St. Martin of Tours in Gaul, modern-day France, about 150 miles southwest of Paris. Now, St. Martin of Tours had led a monastery there with a powerful evangelistic fervor in the 4th century, somewhere around the years A.D. 360 to 370 plus, somewhere in that range, uh, St. Martin of Tours. So Columba, uh, in going to see his, his tomb, also drank in the pattern of the monastic movement that he, St. Martin of Tours, had established in his own land. And then he returned to Ireland to do the same thing in his native land. So Columba started dozens of monasteries in the years that followed his pilgrimage to Tours. The uh, number uh, reaching 41 by the time he turned 41. 41 monasteries by the age of 41. Columba was an intense man. He was fervent for Christ. He also loved beautiful things. He had a taste for beautiful things, no doubt from his royal upbringing. He loved books, especially beautifully designed manuscripts. When he had been a student under Finian, he had fallen in love with Finian's book of Psalms, his Psalter. And this was a uniquely decorated volume of an inestimable value. I mean, keep in mind, essential to this, of course you must understand, this is, in, this is centuries before movable print type, before the printing press. Uh, so everything's copied by hand, and only the wealthiest would have these books. Uh, Columba uh, loved this Psalter that Finian had, and he resolved that he would make his own copy by stealth. So he went and borrowed Finian's Psalter late at night and took it to his desk, and he copied it more or less in the dark. Now, there's all kinds of legends surrounding these, these Irish uh, monastic leaders. One of the legends is that Columba did it in the dark using no candles at all but that light shone from the five fingers of his left hand, which was holding down the manuscript, while his right hand was making the copy, copying the precious words. A little bit hard to believe, but anyway, that's the myth. Anyway, Columba was caught doing this, and he was brought before the king, King Diarmate, who humiliated Columba and forced him to return both the original and his copy. And Columba never forgot that humiliation. Keep in mind, Columba is high-born. He's no nobility. And he doesn't take these kind of slightings very well. And so Columba uh, didn't forget it and was pridefully kind of set against King Diarmate. Sometime later, this same king, Diarmate, had ordered one of Columba's men, one of his followers, to be killed unjustly. And Columba thought it was time to act against King Diarmate. So, claiming that God wanted his monks protected, he motivated the living monks to avenge the dead man. The year was 561. He also mobilized his powerful kinsmen and took the field of battle against King Diarmate and his 
forces. So he was the fighting monk at this point. And Columbus' side dr dramatically won the battle, decisively won. When the battle was ended, 3,001 men lay dead. According to the account, only one on Columbus' side. Again, hard to believe, but that's what the account says. But still, the carnage was immense, 3,001 men dead. Well, Columba was temporarily excommunicated, would have been completely excommunicated. That was standard punishment for any monk that took up arms. But he managed to have his sentence reduced, and his penance for reinstatement to the communion of the church was that he be permanently exiled from Ireland. And it was laid on him that if he wanted to go to heaven, he had to do it from exile and only after saving 3,001 souls to compensate the dead who had fallen in that battle. That was his fault, so they said. And so Columba was exiled, but he went out with the same missionary zeal and evangelistic zeal that he had had in Ireland. He sailed over the horizon and finally reached the rocky and windswept island of Iona off the west coast of modern-day Scotland. And this journey of Columbus would forever change the course of Western history. Now let me describe again, as I've done a little bit, the darkness that was falling in Western Europe at this time. At that point in history in Western Europe, the 6th century AD, vast hordes of barbarian tribes, Germanic tribes, Vandals and Sueves and Alans, wave upon wave of other Germanic barbarian hordes were sweeping across the landscape of what we know as Western Europe, erasing all that was left of the Western Roman Empire, all the infrastructure. Uh, everything was gone. These barbarians went pillaging and plundering and ravaging and burning everywhere they went. The Roman provinces and their governmental structure were gone. And in their place were little principalities that would come to dominate the Middle Ages. Uh, Cahill says, Gothic illiterates ruling other, over other Gothic illiterates, pagan for the most part, or occasionally Aryan Christians. You remember Arianism, uh, what we know as Jehovah's Witnesses. But in those days, it was just a debased, simple-minded form of Christianity in which Jesus is a created being, great, yes, but basically given the same status in Aryan Christianity that Muhammad has in Islam. Certainly not true biblical Christianity. Anyway, that's what these Germanic barbarian tribes were characterized by. The great Roman libraries had been, had been vast and plentiful before the fall of Rome. By the time of Constantine, there are 28 large libraries in the city of Rome. But by the end of the 4th century, the libraries had been completely plundered and destroyed. They were as empty as dead tombs. The books themselves had been, many of them destroyed, but many of them scattered. A few books had survived and been copied by scribes hired by wealthy, literate nobles. But the originals were all that was left, the ones that hadn't been destroyed. Now, meanwhile, in the Irish monasteries, the hardworking Irish scribes were busily copying everything they could get their hands on. How did they get the manuscripts? They would go on pilgrimages, or people would come to them and bring them, but the books were going to Ireland. Cahill wrote, While Rome and its ancient empire faded from mem memory, and a new illiterate Europe rose on its ruins, a vibrant literary culture was blooming in secret along its Celtic fringe. It needed only one step more to close the circle which would reconnect Europe to its own classical past 
and that would be by the scribes of Ireland. Columba and his monastic zealots would provide that step, closing the link. Well, Columba, in his exile, went to Scotland, to Iona, that windswept island off the coast of Scotland. And following their usual practice, you've got Columba and 12 monks. They landed in Iona. They set up that missionary compound. This pattern would be copied over and over again by the missionary monks they sent out. They cared little for impressive buildings. They first made individual stone and sod huts for all the 12 monks. They also made for Columba the abbot's hut, which would be a little larger, a little more ornate, but not much, set on higher, larger and higher ground than the others. They made a kitchen and a refectory where they would share their meals together. Uh, they would make a, make a scriptorium and a library where they would copy the scrolls and then store them. They had a smithy for a blacksmith, a kiln for pot pottery, a couple of barns to store food, and they built a modest church building where they would all pray and worship. And that was it. They're in business. That was what was necessary. Soon, however, they, would, they learned to make a guest house for all the pilgrims coming to share their holy life. At Iona, steady stream of visitors came to observe them and to contemplate joining them. Scots, Picts, Irish, Britons, even Anglo-Saxons. They began to pour into this harsh, remote, rocky, windswept island of Iona, pounded continually by the Atlantic surf. They came to visit, and many of them stayed. They never went home again. And this was Columbus' vision, to start as many of these monasteries as he could in a lifetime like a franchise, think like McDonald's only for holiness sake, that has hit upon a recipe for how to make its kitchen and its dining area, and then they would just spread that all over the country. And they did the same uh, for their monasteries. Columba set a maximum of 150 men in Iona and then started the next one. Now, the people that they were trying to reach in that area were called Picts, Picts, P-I-C-T-S, Picts. Uh, they were fierce, a warlike tribe. They were called Picts because they put pictures on themselves. They were tattooed or painted themselves. The Romans never really defeated them. They were utterly wild in battle. They fought naked with only a spear, but they were just crazed and violent and aggressive. And every time the Romans would push them back and move into their lands, the Picts would soon counterattack within days and win back the territory. The Picts used their knowledge of the terrain, the hills, the woods, the rivers to, to their great advantage. Finally, the Romans just gave up. In AD 122, the Emperor Hadrian ordered a wall built across what we know as northern England, Hadrian's Wall, to keep the Picts out. Uh, these were the fierce warrior people that Columba and his monks of Iona now sought to win for Christ. Think of the level of courage it takes to win them for, into faith in Christ. But again, keep in mind, Columbus, a warrior monk, and his men, they're manly men. These are strong, courageous warriors for Christ. Not using the sword, but obviously willing to do so when needed. But they wouldn't do this in missionary endeavor. And they were there courageously winning the Picts. Now, at that time, the mightiest king among the Picts was a man named Brood, or Brede. In the year 565, Columba went to the stronghold of Brood, to speak with him about Christ. The king shut the gates and bolted them against Columba. He must have heard something about Columba, but he didn't want to talk to him. So Columba sat down and began praying loudly and singing powerfully, along with some of his other Irish monks. And Columba's own account says at that point a miracle happened. The latches on the gates suddenly unlatched by themselves, and the gates swung open all by themselves. 
And this was a miracle. And so the Bruda invited Columba in to talk. And, and it doesn't seem as though eventually the king was converted. We don't have any record of that. But he respected Columba's boldness and his personality and gave him access to the Picts. And many of them were genuinely converted. One account talks about how Columbus sought to reach the Picts, is what it said. Quote, Columba no doubt did many deeds of charity by stealth, but he would have also realized the need for some more ostentatious displays of his power. He was there, after all, to convert pagan Picts, to wean them from the influence of their own priests. A chance to show the efficacy of his faith to an alien audience, as at the king's locked gate, came one day when he was visiting Loch End, near where the river Ness begins. He met a party of Picts who had just buried a companion. They told Columba that the poor fellow had been mauled to death by a water monster. Touched by compassion, but properly aware of his own value to the church, he instructed a companion named Mokumen to swim the river and commandeer a boat moored on the opposite side of the bank. Mokumen did so. Inevitably, the beast, having tasted blood, broke the surface and made for him and was within snapping distance when the saint raised an admonishing hand and told the beast to stop, and the beast swam off with undulating humps, bellowing most frightfully, while Mokumen, trembling with fear and cold, returned to his master. It was indeed a famous miracle, Columba's miracle with the Loch Ness Monster. Now, <laughs> did that happen? I have no idea. I'm not sure what I think about the Loch Ness Monster, but these are the kind of stories a dominant theme uh, was the fierce conflict between uh, Columba and Pictish priests, a war of attrition with the souls of the people as booty. And when Columba and his brethren were once singing vespers outside King Brood's royal house, the Druids, those pagan priests, tried to sh drown them out. But the saint was supplied with such a strong voice that his roared-out rendition of the 45th Psalm struck terror into all who were present, including the king. So, by this point, Brude had uh, a healthy respect for Columba, and in this courageous and manly way, Columba and his followers were able to win many of the Picts to Christ. Well, Columba had a vision for spreading the kingdom of Christ. It was relentless. He again and again trained men, sent them off, 12 men with an abbot, 12 men with an abbot, 12 men with an abbot. So, all over Scotland and northern England, these monasteries were planted and they grew. They would evangelize the surrounding areas with the gospel of Christ. They had copies of the scriptures and would teach them powerfully and clearly to the people. Now, Columba, as his life came toward an end, began to have premonitions of his death. One day he said farewell to all his brother monks who were working out in the fields. For his last task on earth, he chose to sit down at his scribal desk and copy Psalm 34. And as he was writing it out, he stopped after the words, but they that seek the Lord shall never lack any good thing. He then set down his quill pen and whispered, Let Brother Bathine write the rest. That night, Columba rose as usual from his Spartan bed to join the brothers in singing the midnight prayers. And as the monks reached the darkened church, they found Columba in an ecstatic trance at the altar. He blessed them all and then died. So what was Columba like? Well, one historian said he was a man of the very highest birth, with all the natural advantages of command, which such a circumstance gave an aristocratic society. He had the gift of spiritual vision, combined with a power to control other men with the force of his personality. He was a shrewd judge of character, yet at the same time a man of warm sympathies. His monks and the lay people felt his attraction. He could terrify, he could comfort, and he could delight. 
One French historian called him a warrior monk, a man of iron. He had an overwhelming passion, and that was the creation of a literate Christian society among the Picts and Scots of northern Britain. And now, after his death, scores of stout-hearted spiritual sons began to follow the same pattern, the same pattern of transformation, only this time among the pagan angles of Northumbria uh, from their new base, Lindisfarne, further up the coast of Scotland. Cahill said about Columba, like an ancient Irish warrior hero, Columba now became the model for all who had earned the ultimate victory of heavenly glory. Monks began to set out in every direction, bent on heroic, glorious exile for the sake of Christ. They also were warrior monks, not afraid of whatever monsters they might meet. Some went north like Columba, others went northwest like Brendan the Navigator, who visited Iceland, Greenland, and North America with the gospel, uh, apparently supping on the back of a whale in mid-ocean. Some set out in boats without oars, putting their destination entirely in the hands of God. Many of these Irish exiles found their way to continental U Europe, where they were more than a match for the barbarians that they met. And they whom the Romans had never conquered had evangelized only by Patrick, fearlessly now brought the ancient civilization back to its ancient home. That's Thomas Cahill. More importantly, however, they carried the gospel of eternal life in the name of Christ with them wherever they went. So as we conclude now today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head and all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their day, do the same in yours by the power of His Spirit, for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.